Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight, I know we promised you a different movie, but instead we had to change it up due to circumstances, and we're bringing you The Sting, the Best Picture winner from 1973, the one that has the claim for being the Best Picture winner in between Godfathers Part 1 and Part 2. But before we get into tonight's movie, just a few housekeeping notes. Uh, Another shout out to our great friends over at Podcast Town, the uh, growing podcaster community. Uh, We're hoping to push towards uh, 30,000 users here uh, by the end of the year. Um, And uh, if uh, you're a fellow podcaster, I would definitely suggest getting on there. Um, and uh, being part of our little community. Also, a shout-out to one of uh, my fellow founding members over at Podcast Town, uh, Aruna Krishnan, uh, that hosts the Lead That Thing podcast. Uh, They're going to be putting on a Youth Leaders miniseries um, in the next couple of weeks. I think that's two weeks out, but uh, she's got a great new podcast if uh, you want to try and follow that. Uh, I just started listening to it, and uh, it's a great leadership series for uh, anybody looking to get into that um, field. So uh, additional notes. Uh, We're going to have some change-ups here um, in our upcoming schedule a little bit after we get past our big 25th episode, our midway point, our uh, mid-season celebration. Uh, Thank you for everybody sticking with us, and um, we've been getting some more downloads. Uh, We really do appreciate it. Um, For uh, anybody that is a regular listener, please rate, subscribe, and review. But um, we're going to probably – I know we promised last week that um, we were going to do The Great Escape for this episode. Um, Unfortunately, it went off of Prime, and um, so we couldn't watch it. And uh, we switched over to uh, The Sting, which is currently uh, presented over on Peacock, the new app from NBC. Uh, It's free to use, at least um, with commercial services. So if you want to keep up with us, um, that would be the place to do it. Um, Other things, I know we also promised you upcoming um, in November, the James Bond um, back-to-back episodes to celebrate the 25th or uh, movie of um, uh, James Bond coming out this November, uh, which was already delayed from Easter. But due to the pandemic, we're not sure that that it's going to come out at that time. So we may need to call a little bit of an audible. Uh, Other things to note. Um, we're probably going to have, I know we have scheduled at least two guests, uh, upcoming, um, in the next few weeks, um, probably over the next, uh, month and a half, six weeks. Uh, we probably will have a third at some point in there. Um, and, uh, we may have a couple of pre-recorded episodes ready and available for you guys. Um, if, uh, any of that happens. So, uh, just some things to keep on the, uh, podcast, um, as we kind of, uh, move along. Um, I think the first one back then, uh, that we're going to do, uh, for our 26th episode is going to be full metal jacket, the Stanley Kubrick, um, Vietnam picture. It's a little hard to watch initially. It's one of these movies that you watch and then it takes about two days for you to really comprehend how good it really is. Is any Vietnam war picture easy to watch? Well, even Good Morning Vietnam has a lot of depressing parts to it. I actually saw it when it was released in theaters with a a full metal jacket or Good Morning Vietnam. um, I saw both in theaters, Um, but a full metal jacket I saw with a good friend of mine 
who is a uh, chemistry professor now. And um, <clears throat> we both looked at each other like, oh my God, what is this? And we're like, couldn't believe we're sitting through it. And then both of us, like two days or three days later, we're having beers and we're going, you know, that movie was pretty good after all. I mean, so, and we'll talk about the most memorable performance because I know offhand right now who it is. One other quick note before we get into the uh, heart of the episode this week. Um, if you have not been following our show notes, uh, it is included at the uh, bottom of each one of the show notes uh, when we put these out. But um, the uh, blog that I keep personally for uh, each of the shows, uh, we have uh, the full list of uh, all the movies we've done so far. Um, it'll be 24 after this evening. Uh, we'll have our big uh, 25th and review the list. But if you want to just see it as it gets weekly updated, that'd be a, a great place to see it. Uh, otherwise, uh, I have all of the notes for each episode that we've done uh, published on the website, as well as some other content. Um, I will be, uh, once I get done with some of this uh, classic film watching, and we have some more uh, newer films to review, um, like uh, I still have yet to get to Spike Lee's To Five Bloods off of Netflix, also, I've heard some very great things about um, Andy Samberg's Palm Springs over on Hulu, uh, but uh, I'll be putting up some reviews like I have uh, in the past of uh, some of the newer movies, um, just uh, something for everybody to read. Um, so with that, uh, let's dig into the episode. So number one, as we do every week, what is your relationship to The Sting? Let's see. It was in the early days when H my uh, I convinced my dad that we needed HBO, and it was on HBO because I had not seen the movie Sting. I would have been about uh, ten years old at the time the movie came out, um, so I did not see it at the movie theater, but I did see it on on uh, HBO, and absolutely loved the film. Um, I had actually, because I was such a big uh, history fan, and after we had been to uh, South Dakota for a vacation, um, I'd been a big fan of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and uh, was another very, movie we'll <clears throat> be reviewing at some point. Yes, which is same stars, same director. Oh, um, I didn't realize <clears throat> it was the same yep. director. And uh, so. Uh, I've always loved Paul Newman and Robert Redford together. I thought they were uh, they had a great chemistry, and uh, uh, there's a lot of stories about how they kept that chemistry up. Apparently, the two of them were big practical jokers, and they would try to pull the most elaborate practical jokes on each other in order to keep the set loose. And so it was always a big uh, fun time for everybody involved. So, but anyway, so the movie has always been one of my favorites from the moment I saw it. Yeah, I, I would, um, I think Robert Redford would be one of the guys that, uh, I would really like to meet, you know, I think I'd much rather meet Robert Redford as opposed to like Clint Eastwood at this point. Um, just, <laughs> just on a scale of, uh, crotchety versus, um, you know, appealing, but, uh, Yeah. Uh, there's there's I, no no history backdated in that. I, I will I will convey a story at some point about Paul Newman. So 
Okay, during this one, or you want to save? No, that no, one? I'll do it this time. Or during this time, I can do it now, or I can do it later in the show. Well, you might as well. Okay, so I have a very good friend who um, uh, we were involved in a. Uh, your mother and I were involved in this student exchange program, so we got to be friends with a lot of other coordinators when we go to the national conventions. <clears throat> this guy has uh, normal job. His wife was the coordinator. He sold software to different companies. So he traveled all over, but they were from um, the Cleveland area. He happened to be in like Columbus or someplace like that on an overnight for a meeting. <clears throat> he goes in and he sits down at the bar in Ohio, someplace, and I think it was Columbus. And he's sitting there and he looks over to his left and there's a guy sitting there. And he looks at him, does a double take, and then goes, hey, can I buy you a beer? He says, you don't need to buy me a beer. He said, okay, well, why are you here? He says, well, I'm having a class reunion. Okay, he says, hey, I don't mind if we talk, but we have to talk about fishing because I don't talk about my work. And so Ian Paul Newman carried on about an hour conversation over beer in this bar discussing fishing because Paul Newman refused to ever talk to fans out in the public like that about acting. He did say that at the end that if he wanted to talk about race, uh, race cars, they would, he would talk about that too, but otherwise it was fishing. Well, I, I, He's always struck me from his films as um, somebody that would be approachable otherwise. Um, I think that's an interesting line for him to draw. But for people that are in the public eye, I certainly don't have a problem with them um, creating fine lines on what they will or won't do as far as uh, their public persona or, you know, how, how the rest of it is. Because, you know, they are in the public eye. Um, you know, I, beyond that, I, I, I can't say a whole lot, but it is an interesting anecdote. Um, unfortunately he's, um, now since passed, but, um, that would have been another guy that would have been interesting to meet due to, yeah. you know, a lot of his philanthropic work and, uh, such, but I think they're, you know, it's, um, one of the, um, actors we're probably going to do at least, um, a handful, if not a half dozen of his movies at some point or another that are going to appear on the list. Uh, I'm sure the we're going to get to the Hustler, Slapshot, um, The Verdict. Um, Cat also, on a Hot Tin Roof. Right. Um, Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as well. Possibly so. Topaz, which was his lone Hitchcock film. Well, I mean, there are a lot of Hitchcock films to review. That one would be down the list quite a bit. Correct. So. so as far as uh, my relationship to this movie, it's really only um, in so much as my relationship through you. Um, I honestly probably wouldn't have known about this film, at least until I started doing my film watching projects and trying to um, watch every best picture winner ever. But I, you know, this wasn't like something that, um, has a, a huge following or um, has like a, a dented legacy uh, per se, which I think we'll get into some of the scoring of that later as a result. But, um, and it, again, I, I don't even think it's in the same 
legacy category is Butch and Sundance um, for even these two, but uh, it is a highly quality film that it's enjoyable. Um, there are some kind of dark moments that um, don't fit tonally for me, but you know that's more of a critical eye than anything else. And uh, overall, if you're a fan of like con artist movies or heist films or that type of thing, this is a um, at least in the top ten of those types of films that uh, I'd certainly be willing to put on there. So with that, uh, let's just kind of um, give you the plot summary background. Following the murder of a mutual friend, aspiring con man Johnny Hooker, played by Robert Redford, teams up with old pro Henry Gondorf, played by Paul Newman, to take revenge on the ruthless crime boss responsible Doyle Lonigan, Robert Shaw. Hook and Gondorf set about implementing an elaborate scheme, one so crafty that Lonigan won't even know he's been swindled. As their big con unfolds, however, things don't go according to plan, requiring some last-minute improvisation by the undaunted duo. So recognition for this picture, um, it was nominated for Best Actor for Robert Redford, Cinematography and Sound. It won for Best Picture, Director, George Roy Hill, Original Screenplay, Art Direction, Costume Design, Film Editing, and Original Score. Uh, it has been included in both sets of the AFI 100 in the 1997 and or 2007 list. It is in the AFI 100 Laughs list. It is in the AFI 100 Heroes and Villains list, um, with uh, Doyle Lonigan um, being one of the uh, included villains. And it is a 2005 National Film Registry inductee. So, what is this movie about? This movie is about... Um, <laughs> well, yes, it's about... Um, about... You didn't give a whole lot of thought to this one, well, or no, you're I having did. a hard time. I, I, I've been having a hard time. See, I yeah. had a bit of a hard time myself. Can, it, do you it, mind if I give mine, and sure. then you can maybe play off of that? So, uh, con artist getting the upper hand on the man who murdered his friend while simultaneously proving that friend right, that he belongs in the big time. Okay, that's not bad. My comment is it's about con artists, but it's about fulfilling your abilities. Right, and I think... I. I figured that out by the, the last part of it is even though I don't think it's as pronounced in the film, um, the story really does center around Redford. Um, Newman is kind of um, superfluous in a, in a lot of ways. He's just a uh, MacGuffin type character, somebody that drives the plot and gets Redford into the position where he needs to go and sets up the rest of it. Um, but really, it's it's Redford's story from beginning to end and um, all about everything in his own redemption, getting revenge, and then, you know, proving himself in the rest of that. Yes, I would agree. <clears throat> it is his story for the most part. So um, I think I probably buried my uh, best performance in that, but uh, best performance for me was Redford. Uh I would probably agree. I he did do a very good job of it. Um, he had to play it subtly of being both a capable con artist, but also a little bit overwhelmed by being in the big leagues all of a sudden. He kind of reminded me of a rookie coming up to the major leagues, no matter how um, 
highly touted the rookie was the minute he walks onto the field as a major league baseball player there's just certain jitters there's certain things that's kind of the attitude well the only other one i would really consider um because i mean ridford was well that's that's not fair i think there are only three people i would consider for um this particular movie um, the guy who did the score, whose name escapes me at the moment, Marvin, I, uh, Ham- Marvin Hamlish. Hamlish. All right. Yeah. And I knew it offhand the other day, but I, I couldn't think of it right now in the moment. So thank you for that. Um, just because he created what frankly is an iconic score of the time. Um, the score was in the pop charts for an extended period of time in 1973. Yep. I mean, and for a tune that, um, was created in the thirties that he just adapted off of that and. Uh, made it his own because I think this was a fairly popular film in the moment. Um, that being said, the only other one other than Redford, because Redford has so much to do during the course of this film. There are very few scenes that don't involve him directly um, through the majority of this this movie, um, is Robert Shaw. It's because he's created such a, um iconic villain um, to that extent. And... Um, he just does his character very, very well. Um, I don't remember seeing Robert Shaw in a whole lot other than three movies, but all three of those movies, like he's a memorable character. He's in from Russia with love as the villain and he's memorable. Um, he's in jaws as the weird old sea captain, um, who like is, um, incredibly jaded and crusty. Um, and memorable, and he's Doyle Lonergan. Forgot a man for all seasons. He's oh, yes, I forgot that he was King Henry. Okay, King and Henry another VIII. movie we'll be covering um, at some point because I think it's a drastically underrated um, Best Picture winner. So, all right, uh, Best Minor Performance. Um, I, I'm going to say that I have a tie. Okay. Because I love these two character actors. Um, Ray Walston and um, Harold Gould. Harry Gould. Okay. And I, I forget which characters did they play. Uh, kid. Um, oh, what's the, 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 the middle-aged guy that was always dressed immaculately that was supposed oh, to be. okay. Yeah. With the that handlebar was, mustache? Yes. That's, that's Harry Gould. And then Ray Walston was uh, Jimmy, the guy that was the the tout and did the announcing and such. Um, both of them are longtime character actors. Ray Walston's been around from early fifties. He was in the apartment. Um, he did a lot of films with uh, with Billy Wilder. He did television where he was my favorite Martian um, mm-hmm. to Bill Bixby. Um, Harry Gould um, ended up going from this film on to be playing Rhoda's father on the spinoff from the Mary Tyler Moore show, Rhoda. I always liked him. I always thought he was great. Um, He did a lot of voiceovers uh, for his career. He was like the voice of Smucker's Jelly from uh, throughout the 70s and early 80s. so they're, they're just two guys that were longtime Hollywood that actually had a pretty big part in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and, that is very true. And, and didn't necessarily always get those parts. 
Well, and I think this was a large character actor's um, dream because this was kind of an ensemble cast. Even to a certain extent, Paul Newman's kind of, um, you know, a character actor to a certain extent in this, that he's playing kind of a minor role. And the same can be said of um, Shaw. Um, you know, really, there's only one major piece. But, I mean, you could credibly make a case for Charles Durning in this. He's another yep. really longtime character actor. Dana, that um, Dana L. Claire, who was the uh, FBI agent. Okay. Um, Eileen Brennan, who was yes. Paul Newman's yes. girlfriend, did a nice job. There were a lot of great performances in this film. And frankly, that's you and I are always attracted to those, um, in some variety, those um, uh, regular uh, ensemble um, pieces. But you and I have always been drawn to these um, character actor types because, um, or ensemble films, um, most of the time, they're some of the best actors that we have. They're just not the star quality. And there are quite a few films that I'm sure we're going to get to on the list that are uh, going to show that. I think next week uh, when we do Rio Bravo, that's another one where you just have an, a, a really great cast working together that um, really <laughs> makes the rest of the film. I know it's a John Wayne starring picture, but um, there are quite a few other great characters through the entire uh, movie process. But we'll get to that next week. So... Um, did I give my best minor performance? I don't think I did yet. No. Um, so I have a hard time not giving it to Paul Newman. Um, and I'm also going to give him my most charismatic award. Maybe I should have gone in a different direction. But, um, I mean, the guy is just so damn likable, particularly in this. And I'm going to give him my best minor performance. And, again, I'm probably preempting myself a little bit. But uh, you can't not give it to him for the card game. Like yeah. that whole scene is just vintage Newman. Um, and it's a small bit uh, by comparison, but that that is very similar to um, the entire part or character he played in The Hustler. And I, I just think it's a great show of his uh, ability and range as an actor that we got that in that scene and um how it all played out and you know they kind of surprise you there at the end give you a little um uh <laughs> nudge um because you're expecting something and they give you a head fake so um all right who did you have as your most charismatic robert shaw and that's not a bad one i mean we've talked about him already a bit um he's kind of an iconic villain in this but um there's just something about the guy that whenever he's in a film, you're drawn to him. He just had something. You know, it's a it's a shame that he died at only age 51. He was really at the heart of his career when, he, you know, because he had just had this film, then he was in Jaws, then he did a few, a couple other films, and it was, uh, I'm trying to remember what film it was he had just finished, and he stopped at his home in Ireland in order to uh, take a few days to to rest before he was coming back to the United States for a publicity tour, and they found him dead. He had a heart attack. Um, hmm. So, um, yeah, there there are quite a few actors. I mean, we could do another list of that actors that um, died in the peak of their career. Um, I, I can imagine Robert Shaw, Heath Ledger, and John Cazale would be primarily placed um, into that that particular category. But um, 
Yeah, I I, well, I would agree about, with you. I think there's something about, about the way rebel, he. What, what, second, oh yeah, uh, James Reb, Dean, Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean. Yes. So there's. Tons. Well, then you could give uh, Miss Marilyn Monroe as well. Well, but her career that... was on the wane when she died. Uh, yeah. So, but anyway, continue. I'm sorry. No, it's it's fine. I I think there is something. I don't know why, um, but I am somewhat drawn to Shaw's accent, um, and just his delivery and the like, um, weird crustiness to it. But um, just it's like the way he delivers his lines with like this impunity. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. I, I can I can see where you went with that one. I don't know. For whatever reason, um Newman for me is just so um overly charismatic and it it's gotta be I, I think I mentioned this it, maybe it was in one of the podcasts or maybe we were just talking over a weekend, but it's that movie star quality smile. Between him and Redford, like they just have these wide um smiles that are just like so engaging, but all right. So best scene. Uh, this this one is more sequences than individual scenes. And there are some pretty long um, sequences or scenes. And I had a hard time. Um, some of the scenes like early on in the movie, I, I didn't want to necessarily um, I didn't nominate anything from that uh, really other than uh, I have the pigeon drop as uh, one of them. It kind of introduces you and gives you that kind of tonal set of the film where they do that first um basic con but um the whole thing with luther um i i don't know it just it doesn't i know it sets up the plot but it doesn't fit tonally with the rest of the movie and there are just some other things anything uh or any of the charles durning scenes um i know they fit with the plot it just it it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me and they're so I kind of excluded quite a bit more than I would otherwise and kind of really narrowed it down. But so I have the pigeon drop I already mentioned. I also have the card game. And then I gave uh, a couple of other ones where um, it's based on the sequence. You know, they have the title card in front of these. So the shutout um, where they prevent Robert Shaw because they can't actually like cash his money. So they prevent him from actually betting, but they still accomplish the goal of continuing to set him up. Uh, the Western Union office. That's where, one of my favorites. Yeah, where <laughs> it's kind of like the French farce type of situation where in one door, out the other type of thing, and they're painting, and then they just leave, and um, they're able to figure out a way of um, taking over somebody's Western Union office <laughs> in order to make their con continue. But um, the Salino reveal, just because it's kind of surprising to the ending of the film, and uh, how all of that goes, um, I, I still um, it it's similar to me. And I know this is kind of probably downplaying the the piece, but um, the Salino reveal that uh, this um, s- assassin or whatnot was a woman the whole time um, is kind of similar to how they revealed um, the vulture um, in Spider-Man: Homecoming. I will tell you spoilers right now, but um, Peter Parker is trying to date this black girl and he shows up and um, uh, Michael Keaton is her father. And you're like, oh, you should have seen this coming. But because it is a African-American girl, 
you don't get the sense of, well, how could Michael Keaton be her dad because he's white? And so similarly, they're playing on your um, assumptions in order to trick the audience. And so it, it, it still works the same where you're like, oh, shit, I forgot this is a woman killer. And that's all part of this uh, whole piece. And then finally, the last one. So the sting itself, um, the final mm-hmm. sequence um, and setting that all up, because I think there is something where um, even if you've seen it a couple of times, you're still there's there's a little bit of surprise factor to it. So that still works for me as far as that goes. But uh, did you have any others you wanted to nominate? I really enjoyed the whole setup in between where they've done everything they needed to. And then it's the night before and they just have to wait for the sting itself to happen. We've all been in one of those situations where we have a big event in the morning or the next day. And we're trying to find some solace in the time before the anticipation is so great. It's difficult to think of anything else. And we're just kind of, whether it's a wedding or a, graduation or some sort of a test or whatever it is we've all been there and just to watch the actors going through that to me always marks as being yeah i've been there it it adds a bit of authenticity to it i I would definitely agree on that front so uh what for you then is the best scene i love the western union because it just is the epitome They, they just take a bad situation do a quick bit of research and then figure out how to manipulate everybody around them to fall into a pattern and play it right out perfectly. So, and I've already brought this one up. Um, My best scene is also my favorite scene. It's the card game. Um, I think you could make an argument for the most indelible moment. Uh, I have a different nominee for that one particularly, but uh, given the reveal and the setup and the rest of it, and they really try and like set you up on it by showing everybody's cards and then doing all of this other stuff, and then they pull a rabbit out of their hat at the last moment. Um, I just think that's probably one of the best sequences of the in, the entire movie. Okay. So um, what's your favorite scene then? Is it still the Western Union? Or... I like that one, but I think if I had to pick a favorite, it's the most. It's also the one that's most indelible, which is the closing scene. Because so the sting itself. The okay. sting itself. You have no idea when you first watch this film that the FBI agent is in on it. Yeah. Big spoiler there, um, just for the audience. But the other thing with you know shooting each other and uh, everybody being dead, you, you may get an inkling that that's part of it, but you're not entirely certain. Um, and obviously the, the FBI reveal um, is this movie does a good job of um, kind of a, a magic trick. And frankly, all con artist movies are a con in themselves and are somewhat of a magic trick. Show, show you one thing to get you like assuming something or um, looking one way or whatever else. And then, pulling out something else at the end of it. So, um, yeah. but, uh, I had that as the most indelible moment, um, being the finale, just because, um, for as much as this picture built up to, it, and I do think it has a bit of a slow beginning, um, there, it ends on such a good note. And I think that's why it, it kind of sits in the mind because, 
um, like I said, those same reveals. It pulls off and lands the magic trick in order to make this work. Agreed. All right. So um, with that, we will cut quickly to uh, a commercial break for one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. All right, welcome back, everybody. And so we're going to get to best lines. Um, for me, this was a little bit more difficult. Um, this isn't... Um, a movie that I think works because of its um, line delivery. I think it's uh, one that works more on um, a lot of the physical nature of it or the the um, plot devices as opposed to anything quippy or, um, you know, funny or anything else. But I do have a couple of just quick nominees of uh, a couple that I put together. Um, so number one, uh, Henry Gondorf, no sense being a grifter if it's the same as being a citizen. I think that's just probably the con man's line. Yeah. Um, Henry, um, when he first meets uh, hooker, glad to meet you, kid. You're a real horse's ass. Luther said I could learn from you. I already know how to drink. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kid Twist and Benny Garfield. Now, how do you want to work this? Flat rate or percentage? Who's the mark? Doyle Lonigan. Flat rate. I laughed at that one. I think it's probably the funniest piece in the movie. Um, just because... he, he pauses. And says, yeah, there's an effect. Rate. Yeah. To it, so I think if if anything, it's probably the one we'll probably put as a funniest line if there are any. Um, this isn't a particularly funny movie for um being on the afi's 100 laughs list but um you know okay uh and finally billy and lieutenant snyder uh who told you this guy was in here nobody i just know what kind of woman he likes going to check all the joy houses till i find him oh well maybe i could help you if you tell me his name i doubt it which way are the rooms right through there but i wouldn't go in there if i were you what are you gonna do call the cops I don't have to. You'd be busting in on the chief of police just up the hall. <laughs> yeah. So any other ones you wanted to nominate or um, put in before we select best line? No, I can't think of a fan. Again, I, I think this is a difficult one as far as um, as that. If I'm going to nominate anything, I uh, I think we'll, we'll do the... Um, piece because i think it was the only one where each of us kind of laughed out loud um you know flat rate being the funniest line um i uh i don't know if i boy i'm having a hard time thinking of which one's the best of those 
Uh, I think I'll put Gondorf's uh, No Sense Being a Grifter as our honorable mention. So then it's a matter of um, choosing between the other two as um, best line. Um, and I guess I'll probably go with with the last one here, um, just kind of by default. But again, this is a difficult one to really have any memorable lines. This is a very visual movie for the most part. Yes. The 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 writing of the specific lines matters very little ultimately to the presentation of the film. The lines, if anything, have to be delivered with a certain timing. Um, and that has to do more with anything else because they're setting up all of the visual aspects. Yeah. Um, not necessarily this isn't one of those where uh, or this isn't a movie that um, is simply a talking movie, um, you know, where they're together in a room and they're just like having conversations. I mean, we're probably going to get to a few of those movies here yeah. in the next uh, few weeks. But um, this is much more of like a tweener where it's uh, slight action and slight um, otherwise. So, all right. Uh, uh, you uh, have your scoring down. Yes. Okay. So I don't have any remaining questions for this episode, so this will probably just uh, end it for us, and uh, we'll we'll keep this one pretty crisp for the week. So um, first off the bat, as always, Legacy, what did you have down? I think this really started – well, I shouldn't say that because there were other con artist movies before, but I think this kind of – I think this really was the epitome of what started the three Ocean's Elevens movies again. Uh, if you've watched the original Ocean Eleven with Boy, Sinatra, I think that's a stretch. It was really different. Oh yeah, no doubt. I've seen the original Ocean's Eleven with Sinatra and Dean Martin and the rest of them, and it's it's a much different movie. But that being said, um, you're jumping from like the ocean movie that Sinatra and them did was in the mid sixties. This is 1973. And the other oceans movies are from 2001, 2004 and 2007. So I think it's a little bit of a stretch to say that's in there, but this is one of the more notable con artist heist type movies. Um, if, if you like that, that genre, I think it is kind of a unique genre to itself. Um, but because it's unique, I came with an eight. So I did a seven, and it's simply because something I, I started with at the top. Um, this is not something that is a movie immediately off uh, the top of somebody's head, unless you're like a film critic or film historian. But everybody that sees the movie really enjoys it. And I think this is something that, you know, easily could be in somebody's top 100 if they gave it some thought. So I put that in kind of a tweener situation where I have seven, but between your seven and my eight, you know, a seven and a half is probably about right. I okay. think it gets more uh, praise than, um, you know, being a mediocre film or middle of the road film, but I can't put it high up the list. I mean, this isn't something that, um, lives on and is is talked about nearly in the same way that some of the other films that Redford or Newman did uh, kind of are. And that's, uh, to a certain extent, I think that's kind of sad, but, you know, it's it's the nature of the game sometimes. So, uh, impact significance, uh, I had an eight and a half. 
and it, it, I simply had it at the time between the soundtrack, the amount of awards it got, um, some of the other pieces of, I mean, this was a fairly high grossing movie. This was um, well talked about. It was well discussed. Most people enjoyed the movie. Um, it kind of had a um, ceremonious ride through the award season, as far as I can tell, in the moment. And we already talked about that uh, Hamlish's score, you know, made it into the pop charts and was pretty high up. I, I think it might have um, the entertainer from the beginning that's kind of the notable part of this movie. Um, uh, was at number one for a little while, if I if I know right, but I'd have to yes, ask the uh, now deceased Casey Kasem. So, um, you know, as far as what we've kind of crafted impact significance at the time, I would say that this um, does lend a little bit of credence that in the moment it was impactful or significant, had a, an effect on the pop culture, at least for the 70s. Where it's really lost its steam is since then. And which is the unfortunate part as far as I'm concerned. So what did you have down? I had a seven. Interesting. So we kind of almost swapped. Yeah. So I I know this was, you would have only been about 10 years old at the time. But do you remember anything from like the immediacy or the impact at the time? Well, like I said, Scott Joplin had a huge rise as far as his popularity and and the entertainer and, and the score and all that and the music was made a rise again and, and everything. But it, it was short lived. I mean the seventies were fad after fad after fad. Well I mean, that's fads true. fads lasted or ninety to hundred and eighty days. I mean we're talking about fads of um we went from streaking to disco to, I mean, it was just like, you know, constantly changing fads, leisure suits. I mean, <laughs> it was just, and they weren't always good leisure suits. Um, um, they were ever good? Well, they were hugely <laughs> popular. Okay, just because something's popular does not mean with the uh, benefit of hindsight that they were good. Um, well, I don't know. My dad wore his leisure suit for about 10 years. <laughs> so, uh, that, and I can see that too. Yeah. All right. So uh, what did you have down for novelty then? Uh, I had that as an eight. So I, I similarly shared that, but what, what uh, makes it an eight for you? It, it was an ensemble cast. It was an, uh, it went back in time. It was a period piece. And it was light and fun for being what was really a crime movie. Yeah, I, I would agree. And we've kind of already talked about it that um, generally this is a unique genre to itself. Uh, I, I know that that's a bit redundant from some comments maybe a few minutes ago. But um, ultimately, there are not a lot of types of these movies. And because it's such a magic trick to make these work, when they work, they really work, and when they don't, they really don't. You mean and like so, in Sting Two? I didn't even oh, know there was a, a sequel, oh, but yeah, Mac Davis and Jackie Gleason puke. Well, you know, but again, I think given all of the the surrounding pieces, there just are not uh, a lot of types of these movies being covered, um, and they gave. Um, 
you know, at least uh, a little bit of um, effort to try and make this very different than anything else. I honestly think it's one of the more unique uh, Best Picture winners, you know, ever, but um, especially for the time period that it was in. Uh, I don't think it was really necessarily ahead of its time, although we have a lot more con-like movies now in the modern era, so maybe you could give that that, but ultimately, I, I would agree in settling on an 8. Uh, I've, I find that to be right about par. So, uh, what did you have for classicness? Well, see, to me, classicness is in part... Um your own connection with it and how you feel about it in retrospect. So to me, it's a classic. Is it going to be on, you know, it's going to be on my top 10 favorite movies. Well, again, we want to separate out rewatchability versus classicness. I know, but I have a hard time. Um, You know, a a classic movie is something that, you know, I'm going to give it an eight. Because it doesn't fit with everybody else's classicness, but it does, at least to me, it's a classic film. So this is us attempting to be objective whilst yet subjective. And I think that's at least the four primary categories. Rewatchability is, of course, going to be subjective. Um, but I, I agreed with an eight. I originally started higher and I've moved down. But this is a period piece, um, so they have a lot of the um, period aspects. It does involve, at least to a certain extent, um, you know, a woman does, or two women um, play some rather prominent roles within the film, um, including subverting the expectation by the the assassin being a woman. Um, You have minorities in Luther and um, his family, although they're really, you know, kind of shuddered to the beginning of the film, but that's at least... Um, part of this and you don't really see anybody else as far as that goes oh no the guy that they that ha- owned all the equipment they rent or oh south. i suppose yeah okay yeah the space but um you know and for being chicago you'd think that there would be a few more minorities but it was kind of segregated by neighborhood so i could even give some of that a pass in context but ultimately i came down on an eight just because um I mean, I probably could move up. I, I really could. Uh, I really don't see any problems with this film. It holds up. It um, doesn't have any issues. I wouldn't say it's a particularly funny movie, but um, you know, it has its moments, and it's a fun movie, um, even if it's not funny. Um, but an eight's probably a good spot. If we ever do revisit this, and I don't know if we will, but... Um, you know, maybe that'd be higher in hindsight if we get a few more years back on that one. So, all right. Rewatchability. I think this is going to be the one where you and I differ. I'll just give mine because I know this one has always been a favorite of yours, but, um, based on the criteria we kind of introduced last week, um, that, uh, we kind of given as the standard set to our guests, uh, this is not one that I'm gravitating towards. It's not one of my guilty pleasure films or one of the ones that I'm going to put on because I know it so well and I can like have a nap or whatever else. Um, this is kind of a tweener. It's one of those, it's kind of like what the Maltese Falcon or um, some other classic movies that I really enjoy, but um, 
you know, it's not something that I'm necessarily putting on immediately, but I could, you know, every couple of years put on and like really enjoy the film or um, more specifically, like if somebody hasn't seen it before, oh, this would be a good one to show you and at least give you a rounded film um, filmography. So seven seemed like a good number for where I'm at. I would imagine you're much higher. Nine. Really? I thought you would have been close to a nine and a half or a ten. No, because even then, yes, I enjoy watching the film, but it's not completely mindless to me. It's not something, it's not the, it's not defined as the mac and cheese of um, movies. Um, It's something that I would gravitate to if it was available, but um, I still want to watch it. I would like to watch it pretty much once a year, every 18 months. But more than that, I uh, um, might get a little too much. And that's and fine. That's why I went with a nine. So the rewatchability then uh, averages out to an eight. So that's uh, 7.5 for Legacy, 7.75 for Impact Significance, eight for Novelty, eight for Classicness, eight for rewatchability. And this might have one of the highest, if not the highest, audience score that I've seen yet the movies we've covered of uh, just the 24, but it had a 95 um, actually for audience score, which was one point above the critic score. Um, So 9.5 adds up to a 48.75. And let me just take a quick look at the list. Uh, That is number 11 on our current film list. So right in between uh, E.T. from a couple of weeks ago and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which um, given that it was one of our first ones, uh, I think that might uh, require a revisit at some point. Sure. So, um, but uh, we will get into rereading the rest of the list um, next week. Uh, I know that our number one film at the moment does not still sit well with you because <laughs> it's still Back to the Future. Um, but uh, um, when uh, we get through our Rio Bravo episode, we'll uh, take a look back. If you want to see the full list again, I would point you to um, tj3duncan.wixsite.com um, backslash tj3duncan um, just to uh, look at that for the personal blog. If uh, you don't want to remember all of that, it's in the show notes um, as a clickable link. So uh, other than that, um, as always, please rate, subscribe, review. You'd really be helping the podcast if um, you uh, gave us a four or five star rating, um, trying to help uh, us uh, get found by other people. Um, if you'd love to share us, um, you know you can find Dana or I on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Instagram. At least for me, I don't know if you have an Instagram account, but yes, I do. Um, and uh, just uh, and share the Snapchat podcast. And all, all yeah, kinds of other ones. okay. Yes. So, but um, just. Uh, uh, if you enjoy the show, we'd uh, either like to hear from you or um, help grow the audience. And um, we appreciate uh, everybody that's been listening so far and uh, that has given us any of their time. So, I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Thanks, and join us again next week for our 25th um, episode our celebration one of the midpoint of season one. Have a great week, everyone.